0: Hey guys, it's Abel here with the Sustainable Cell Development Podcast, and this week I'm bringing you a very cool interview with a very cool guest, and that very cool guest is none other than Lyle McDonald. Lyle has been on my channel before, and at that time we talked about all kinds of cool stuff, and this time we delve into everything related to dieting psychology, dietary adherence, and basically how to not kick yourself in the ass when you're dieting. And I just want to say that this will be the primary focus of my content for the upcoming weeks and potentially upcoming months. Basically, how can you master your own psychology, your own mindset, so that you can actually succeed with your fitness goals. Uh, As they say, success is 20% mechanics and 80% mindset. And I think it's very, very true when it comes to things like fat loss and getting lean Because frankly, odds are that if you're listening to this episode, you know what to do to lose fat. You know how much protein you should be eating, you know how much fiber you should be getting, and you know that you should be progressively overloading your workouts in the gym. But probably many of you, just like me, have been spinning your wheels a lot in the past, despite knowing what to do and having the right information. So my goal for the upcoming weeks or months will be to bring on guests who can help you to not make this mistake and help you to actually achieve your fitness goals and bulletproof your mindset so you can really walk the walk and unlock your true potential. And yes, for the nerds amongst you, I totally stole that phrase from Martin Burkhan. I'll link to his article in the show notes that I'm referencing here. But anyway, so I have the legend himself, Lyle McDonald on here, with whom we had a crazy almost two-hour-long interview which I will be bringing to you in two parts. And we talked about all kinds of cool topics such as issues around flexible dieting and IIFYM and how this dietary cult, which started off as a means to liberate and educate people about nutrition and the things that really matter in fitness, now kind of bred almost as much zealots as the clean eating cult did back in the day. Uh, We also talked about binge eating and why so many people develop disorder behaviors like binge eating disorders when they get into fitness. Also, we talked about how your personality type might affect what kind of dietary strategy might work best for you. And we also talked about fast versus slow weight loss and which might be more appropriate in different situations. So tons and tons of cool topics here. And now you will hear part one of this interview and part two will probably come out in a week or so. So I hope you'll enjoy this discussion. Be sure to subscribe so that you won't miss part two when that comes out. And without wasting too much more time, let's get into the interview with Lyle McDonald. All right, so hey Lyle, thanks for coming on. I'm honored to have you here, and how is it going?
1: Um. Well, as I was telling you before the interview, I've actually been dealing with my first major injury. I managed to break completely fracture bone in my leg and tear two ligaments, uh, roller skating. I got bumped and, and injured, so I had major surgery. And I'm about four and a half weeks into my recovery, and it's just a pain in the butt um, having to be on crutches and deal with the world. But I've gotten I've gotten some good writing done because I can't do anything else. Um, other than that, everything is fine. I think my recovery is proceeding, um, and I may even end up writing a little ebook or something about just you know nutritionals. Uh, support for injury recovery because certainly there are things that can facilitate that and let's face it in an active community people get hurt ranging from minor stuff tendonitis, to major stuff and uh getting back to function is certainly a key thing and there's ways to facilitate that so that's pretty much it some good and some bad
0: yeah so yeah like i said before the interview i'm sorry to hear and and i hope that you will be able to channel some of that, some of that frustration into writing and and some intellectual outlets. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: I yeah, I wish, I wish I'd done more writing when I first got done with surgery because they gave me some really good pain drugs, um, like mm-hmm. they put me on Vicodin and and you know some of the good stuff which I really don't care for. I, I don't. I'm too much of a control freak. I don't like being impaired in that fashion. But I bet if I'd done some writing while I was hyped up on pain pills, I bet it would have been fascinating uh, just because (laughs) it would have been completely insane. But yeah, I just a lot of it. You know, I, I do work at home. I've always had a lot of free time. Mainly this is just like my dogs are a hassle just functioning when you're injured. Um, Because I live alone, just makes it makes everything harder. So crutches are actually physically very exhausting, although they burn a lot of calories. Um, It is sort of interesting. Getting around on crutches burns about twenty percent more calories than walking. So you know, I think I think some new fat loss approaches can come out of this. I think I think crutching on a treadmill for an hour could uh, could possibly be the next approach to uh, low intensity cardio because you know it it really sucks Um, anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So just to, to make a comment, which has nothing to do with the theme of today's discussion. Uh, what like when someone gets injured and had surgery and obviously a lot of healing is going on, what would you recommend that person to do like calorie adjustment wise?
1: Well, there's kind of two competing things and a lot of it depends on the nature of the injury. Like on the one hand, if you've been very active, your activity may go down significantly, right? Um, you know, if you're a lower body athlete, like I can't train legs, which is great. No, you know, that's, you know, silver lining, no leg day for a while. Um, <laughs> so if you're a very active athlete, on the one hand, you're probably going to do less activity unless you find things you can do. You know, upper body it can impact weight training, but if you're a cyclist or a runner, not so much. So on the one hand, your activity may go down. On the other, crutches, especially for lower body athletes, do increase If you're getting around on them a lot. So you have to fact, the big difference, the big issue though, excuse me, is injury recovery takes a lot of calories and some of the corrections i found, it can range from 20% over normal for fairly minor injuries up to 50%, right? Like new tissue building is not, is not cheap. And if you think about it, right, think about relative to their body weights, growing children have a tremendous calorie intake. Um, I mean, not big in absolute terms cause they're small, but much bigger on because they are synthesizing bone and tendon and ligament and muscle. Um, you know, in the case of severe burn injury, it can be up to a hundred percent and I'm not saying, you know, truly a new way of burning in the cuts is just to go get, you know, third degree burns all over your body. But yeah, so you have to factor that in. Um, and I think one of the biggest mistakes I, I see people, I get this question all the time. People get hurt they're like, I don't want to get fat. And it's like, well, then you're not going to heal. Like you cannot diet when you're injured, when you're injured, your hormones won't be optimal. You will not have the nutrients to support growth. Like, am I happy that I'm having to gain a little body fat now? No, but I'd rather eat too much than too little because I can lose the fat. And if this bone and ligament don't heal properly, I'm going to be impaired for the rest of my life. So, you know, you, you have to factor in your decrease in activity so that multiplier may go down, but then you may have to bump it back up twenty to fifty percent. You know, in a complete bone fracture, it's it's in that range. So it can be pretty significant. You need plenty of protein. Um, the study, the numbers they usually throw in like one and a half grams per kg. So like double, you know, double the American DRI. I don't I don't know what it is in other parts of the, the country. And then if you had someone who's weight training, it could even go up beyond that. We may be we may be right back to the old one gram a pound. Um, For bone healing, you need plenty of calcium, vitamin D, vitamin K. There's a bunch of little micronutrients. Um, There's been a really interesting paper that um, collagen synthesis in tendon is increased if you have like a a collagen protein about an hour out. A guy named Keith Barr did a really interesting study with a, a vitamin C collagen supplement, and he took that an hour before doing some jump jump rope and collagen synthesis rates were doubled, right? So that's that's pretty significant. Um, you know, in my own rehab, like I'll eat and since I've got a bone and a ligament issue, plenty of protein, I'll have my my calcium and my bone supplement. And then about an hour later, I'll do stuff to kind of load those tissues, you know, lightly. And based on the pro you know, it's the same reason we eat protein around workout. You stimulate the growth, but you've got to have the nutrients to support it. So there's kind of all of these, and you got to control inflammation. For me, you know, I was on anti-inflammatories early. That can actually hurt uh, healing in the long term because they're actually too strong. So, you know, uh, fish oils, curcumin, turmeric, or uh, bromelain, you know, there's a lot of dietary supplements. The key is modulating inflammation, not eliminating it. Um, So it's kind of, there's all these different factors, uh, but yeah, you do need sufficient calories and it can be a pretty significant increase if the injury is major. Like clearly if you spray, you know, if you get a little muscle pull, you don't need to bump your calories by 500. You need two days of recovery. If you fracture a bone or tear a ligament and get surgery, it's a pretty significant increase in caloric intake, more than
0: I think people realize. Cool, that's knowledge bomb for the day, for sure. The the thing that I wanna I wanna discuss with you today is, you know, I, I read a really good quote on one of your in one of your articles some time ago, which said that fat loss and dieting success is basically uh, a combination of physiology, environment, and psychology. And in today's discussion, I want to really dive into everything that is related to psychology. Because as we just talked about before the interview, physiologically, I mean, the old adage of just eat less and move more, is a bit oversimplified, but it's pretty much that simple when it comes to fat loss.
1: Uh, Uh, Let me interrupt you just briefly. I read this really funny paper. Uh, Funny. I mean, it it was was a read. And he sort of went through this thing about how the general advice is incorrect. There's all these overlapping areas. And, you know, we can't just give simple advice. And then he got to kind of the conclusion was like, but ultimately what we're looking at is modification. You know, he basically said that eat less and move more is bad advice. And then he concluded that we need to look at ways to modify food intake and activity. And I'm like, um, what? Mm-hmm. I'm like, how did you go from here to basically just saying the exact same thing? I mean, he had to write a paper clearly. He hit Yes, that is oversimplified. We know that there are better and worse ways to diet. You know, there are better and worse ways to do it. Re- introduce activity. One of the things I've written about, you know, people focus on genetics and environment. And make no mistake, these are important. They're also out of your control, right? We cannot change our genetics at this point. Is it interesting? Sure. Do I think we'll reach a point where we can do some genetic testing to determine what diet may be better or worse for somebody? Absolutely. However, they are fundamentally out of our control. So why worry about it, right? Our environment, I re, I've read a big thing in a lot of the, the obesity prevention things. We know that certain modern environments are relatively more or less conducive to regular activity, right? You go to the American Northeast, those are walking cities. You go to Austin, Texas, this is a driving city. You go to Los Angeles, there's actually a song about it, which is Nobody Walks in L.A., People who walk in L.A. are poor. Like Realistically, it is a car city. So there's this big push, you know, having access to activity parks. That was a thing that got big in the 90s, early 2000s in in Nashville, which is my hometown. They built kind of these public activity parks. And what they were is they were walking, running paths that were a half mile long between activity stations. There'd be chin-up bars and a push-up station, and, a, and they had little signs that said, do this. And that's great because for a lot of people, access gyms are expensive or can be, time, etc., cetera, etc. cetera, et cetera. And in some of these textbooks, you've got these theorists going, well, we just need to change the complete structure of modern cities. Okay, that's lovely in theory, what are you going to do, tear down a major city and rebuild it? Great great advice can't be done, right? Pragmatically speaking, cannot be implemented right now. Um, and let, until maybe new cities can be built like that, but we're running out of re- – but that's just not a realistic thing. So practically, as an individual who wants to lose weight or as a coach, giving someone advice, the main factors we can control are our food intake and our activity. That's just the reality of it. Again, better and worse ways to do it. We know more protein is better than less protein. Some people are better on, lo- you know, yada, yada, yada. That's fine. But at a fundamental level, we are modifying food intake. We are modifying activity. We may be putting in, you know, weight loss drugs if necessary. Um, I saw a recent paper where they were like, uh, they called it an aggressive approach to weight loss. And it was seriously diet, exercise, like five different weight loss drugs weekly meetings with dietitians, regular email chat, like they threw everything against the wall to make it stick. Did it work? Sure. Do most people have access to this? No. So, yes, but but I do think, like you said, we know how to exercise to lose weight or to lose fat or to spare muscle mass. You need resistance training, cardio can burn calories, interval training has its whatever. It's all good. We know how to do diet. One thing that I think we have kind of skirted on is the psychology of it. And for years I did the same thing. You know, I I think a danger, personal trainers, coaches, our psychology, right, we were the motivated people. We were the ones who got into activity and loved it and wanted to do it. If I wanted to do something in my own training or diet, I just did it, right? Just do it or be quiet about it. Like that's the attitude, which fine, but it doesn't work that way for a lot of people. You know, it would be fantastic if everyone were intrinsically motivated to do this stuff, right? extrinsic motivation, redoing something for external reward. We know that's not optimal. Well, guess what? For the average person, telling them to be intrinsically motivated is like telling a dog to be a cat, right? You cannot do it that way. At best, you start them extrinsically, And hopefully, over time, it becomes more intrinsic. This gets into something called self-determination theory. But if someone just simply doesn't have that internal motivation, telling them to have that internal mate is not good advice. You may have to give them a, okay, do this, and you'll whatever it is. You'll get money. You'll look better. Your significant other will have more – like, whatever it is. But as they realize the other benefits of being healthy or being active, it may become more intrinsic over time. Um, So you got – and there's a lot of other psychological things, you know. Uh, The one I I wrote about this years ago is that, like I said, diet's relative – it's easy in premise. It may not be easy in practice. Exercise is easy in premise. Why can't people maintain these habits? That's really the bigger question. We know they can all – everybody can do it for a little while, right? Everybody, you put them on a diet, they all lose weight. Almost pretty much everybody if they stick to it. Why do 60 to 70 percent rebound? That's the big, and, and this is true in all domains. Why do drug users show no better uh, behavior change? Smoking, alcohol, changing people's general life choices—you get, you see the same failure rate. Now, what I find interesting, getting way off topic, is there's kind of this this belief now that oh. Since most people fail at weight loss, we shouldn't even recommend it. Okay, would you say that for a drug user? Would you say that for a smoker? We know that they failed at about the same rate. Why, why, uh, why the disconnect? Why in this one domain of weight loss are we saying don't even bother, but in all these others we're saying let's find better ways to do it? I mean, there's still researchers, but there's this weird disconnect to me societally in what we're saying is worth pursuing and is not worth pursuing. But anyway, so, yeah, I do think the psychology of it in in various aspects from individual psychology to kind of longer term attitudes about uh, diet and behavior change and things like that uh, are all critically important. So I think that's what we're going to talk about.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly, and and just to make a, a comment on one of the things that you mentioned, weight loss drugs, uh, it it's it, it brought to mind that I heard some very smart person on a podcast discussing not very long ago that he believes that one solution to basically everybody's weight loss problems will be in some many years in the future these drugs that will modify the ghrelin leptin ac- axis, but but you know the the thing is is that I heard it and my first thought was like. I don't think so. Like, yeah, it will help a lot of people, but I think a lot of people will still manage with their mindsets and psychology to still binge.
1: And, and I think this gets into an issue of like in any, whenever you look at any behavior change, and this is part of why some of the statistics are wrong, there's a group of people that do it on their own, that succeed, that we never hear about, right? There's this this really bad statistic that only 5 to 10% of people maintain weight loss. Well, it's bullshit. It came out of studies in the 50s, on people that had been in like a dozen weight loss studies, they are the hardest of the hard cases, right? You go on any internet forum, what do you see? I can't lose weight, nothing I'm doing is working, this and that and the other, and it makes you think that every single person is having a problem. Well, guess what? The people succeeding, don't talk about it, (laughs) right? You don't, the people who are not having problems don't come onto a forum to go, you know what? My diet's working great, I'm out. So we get this really skewed idea that people that are doing it on their own, it's a fairly large proportion, you don't hear about. At the same time, there's a proportion of people that try and try and try and try and try or may have biological underpinnings, which again, the genetics in are there, the biology is there, they're finding all these different factors, which can be modified. But even there, there's a weird disconnect, Right. We have tons of, of anti we have we have not tons. We have drugs to help with smoking cessation, right? Well butrin, chantix is a new one, and what are they doing? They're modifying brain chemistry, right? Well butrin raises dopamine in the brain, so you don't need as much reward from smoking. Antidepressant too. I don't know how chantix works because I don't keep up with this stuff. If you're dealing with hardcore drug addiction. Right. Heroin users, they used to get methadone, which is its own hassle. There's another one, I I think it's called Suboxone, that basically makes them not get high from it. No one would question the use of these drugs. We know that they're just necessary. And that's not to say that some people don't quit of their own, right? But when it comes to weight loss, go on any internet forum where there's bodybuilders or fitness people and go, I want to use a weight loss drug. Why don't you just have some damn willpower why don't you just suck it up and just stick to your diet? There's this weird weight loss, and I realize it's more complicated than this. People are just like, it's the and, and uh, uh, sorry the, yes the, the sloth and gluttony model. Oh, you're just lazy. You just eat too much without recognizing that there are biological underpinnings to this. Some of the same reward systems that are dysfunctional in drug users are dysfunctional in the obese. They get more reward from tasty foods. We have access, and I'm not saying that changing it is not going to be, the, the in a sense, changing your eating habits is harder than stopping drug use, in the sense that you can make, change your lifestyle to not be exposed to drugs, right? Alcoholics just don't go into bars. They don't go to environments where there's alcohol. You don't have to drink to live. You don't have to do drugs to live. You don't have to, do, you don't have to gamble to live. You have to eat can't get around that. We live in an environment, turn on the TV, turn on the internet, food, commercials, our entire societal social structure revolves around food. You can't change that and you have to eat food. So in, in a weird way, also there's a, without getting way off topic, cause this will be in one of my books eventually. With drugs, the longer you stay away from them, usually the cravings get a little bit less. So it's hardest in the early stages and easier down the road. Dieting is easiest in the early stages and gets harder down the road because your body's fighting back more. So dieting kind of like fat loss by definition, again, in, I'm not in some ways as hard. Clearly heroin is more addictive than bagels but in, in a behavioral sense, just because we can avoid, you can avoid drugs now and you can't avoid food. So, but yeah, I do think we're going to, you know, they're looking at drugs that modify the, op- the opioid system and the dopamine system. And there's a combo they're using, I uh, forget the name of the drug, not really my area. And in cases where there is a dysfunctional system, right? If you were di- type two diabetic, no one really, or type one diabetic, nobody blanks. You have a biological defect. We need to fix that. Weight loss, there's still a different pervasive attitude. And I do think down the road that will change. We will get better drugs. I do think it will have to be multiple drugs because we know there's, what, a dozen every day they find a new one. We've got ghrelin, leptin, PYY, the opioid system, the dopamine system, the endocannabinoid system, the histamine system. you got all these overlap because food is critical to survival. But I do think we'll get there. I think we'll also get to a point where, just like with antidepressants, just like with so many drugs, we'll be able to identify what a given individual's, uh, what that limiting factor is, go, okay, you need an endocannabinoid drug, you need a dopamine drug, you need an opioid system drug, and be able to uh, individualize that in the same way we'll be able to individualize diet down the road with uh, nutrigenomics and stuff. So I actually do agree with him in the aggregate that I think they will be used much more Commonly, maybe not in everybody, but certainly in the cases of Severe obesity and the people who have tried on their own and just can't make it work. So yeah
0: Um and so for people like up until these drugs are developed Let's let's give people some tangible or actionable things that they can they can hang on to so let's start with the the huge pink elephant in the room that obviously we have to address first, and that is the whole flexible dieting clean eating issue because you were you were one of the first pioneers who kind of introduced the whole concept that you you can have table sugar and whatever, and you can get just as ripped and that's not that's not really news anymore. um so I would be curious first of all, how do you how do you see the state of flexible dieting and what it's gotten to? at this point and, and what things are you happy about and what things you are not so happy about? Well,
1: so, two things. I actually am fair. I'm reasonably sure that I was the first to write really formally about flexible dieting. I mean, make no mistake, these concepts have been be used practically. My first book was in 2004. Okay, it is now 2017, and you look around on Facebook, and everyone talks about flexible dieting. Some people even pretend that they came up with the idea. Okay, I was there 13 years ago, and I do actually believe I was the first one. Um, so, so and, and I get it a little, you know, sometimes I get credit for it. And, of course, at the time, in, in a world of extreme bodybuilding and fitness people, to go, you know what, you can actually get ripped having the occasional, you know, bit of junk food you got to be out of your mind. If you don't eat clean, you can't get like every – it was such a foreign concept. Well, all the top guys eat clean. Well, actually, no, they don't. But that's just all they've ever done. And I'm not saying eating clean doesn't work, which which I'm just simply saying that maybe there's a better way. Now, so that's point one. Point two is I need to take responsibility for something, which is – the way I represented flexible diet, because I, I had sort of these very structured approaches. I had the free meal, the refeed, and this is all during the leptin days when I wrote that book. Uh, the, the full diet break was all kind of hormonally based. Those are flexible dieting strategies. Okay, You will not find those – and maybe the full diet break, there's that weird study by Wing that I kind of focused on, refeeds were a leptin thing. Um, Researchers talk about flexible dieting in a very different way than we talk about flexible dieting practically, and I think to a very great degree I can be blamed for that because the way I kind of described flexible dieting in that book wasn't really how it's used in the research. So flexible dieting in the research has more to do with attitude, right? You've got rigid attitudes and you've got flexible attitudes. Rigid attitudes are that very black, white, good, bad, diet food, non-diet food Uh, idea of food, right? At the extremes it turns into orthorexia, which is this obsessional nature about the the healthiness versus unhealthiness of food. And clean versus unclean is another example of that. Flexible dieting attitudes had more to do with realizing that these are there are no good and bad in the sense of this is a diet food, this is a because a lot of people think in those terms. They actually are like, when I'm on a diet, I eat these 10 foods. When I'm off a a diet, I don't eat any of those foods. Clearly that's not a a good long-term approach. So flexible dying attitudes has more to do with how people conceptualize things in terms of a food not being good or bad, not this binary black or white thinking. It also has to do with how people deal with uh, violations of their diet, for lack of a better word, basically lapses. The, the rigid dieter and, and, and a researcher, Polivy and Herman, were kind of the first two to really talk about this. They talk about restrained and unrestrained eating and disinhibition, which I can get into in a minute, and found that, that sort of the restrained, this rigid eater, right, if they, if they had a real or perceived lapse in their diet, right, if they had something that, that was off their diet, they would lose control. And that was a very, that's a very rigid type of thing, right? It's like, well, I'm on a, I've gone on this specific diet. I had a cookie. My diet's, my I've ruined it. My diet's over. The day is over. You you see that being recommended on some of the extremist forums. Somebody goes in and is like, ah, oh, you know, I, I had, I had some cream in my coffee. Well, cream is unclean. I don't know why, but whatever. Uh, Walden's, somehow Walden's flavorings, clean, although they're processed as hell, but dairy cream, because dairy is bad. And literally people will go, nope, day's ruined. Go eat blizzards. You've you screwed it up. That's a very rigid attitude. You either are perfect or you're zero. There is no middle. Flexible dieting attitudes are somewhere in the middle. So that that's, a, again, I take full responsibility for that. I made it sound like flexible dieting was these strategies. So anyway, that that got written and everybody ignored it for about eight or 10 years. And then now it's all anybody can talk about. Right. And unfortunately the, the inner, the, the flexible dieting community has become almost as extremist and as zealotrous uh, as the clean eating group ever was. It has just become another ideology that if you're not flexible dieting, you're doing it, doing it wrong. And that's just as dangerous. Now, again, I was one of the, you know, Pioneer, whatever. I just happen to find the right studies. I'm I'm pro-flexible dieting. Don't think I've reversed my my opinion on this, anyone listening to this. However, there's more nuance to it for for a number of reasons. Like, and, and there's a bunch of different variables that kind of go into this. I've even seen some of the extreme flexible dieters, right? So we have orthorexia, which is this attitude of it's, it's almost a religious attitude. Foods are clean or unclean. It's a obsessional nature. And if someone says, you know what, peanut butter is a trigger food for me. If I start, I can't stop and say, so I don't eat any. You will have people going, you're orthorexic. No, 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 no. That's not what orthorexia means. Orthorexia is when someone says, I can't eat peanut butter because it makes me morally weak as a person. Right? It's the difference between the born-again anti-alcoholic and the, 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 religious, the, the religious anti-alcoholic. Right? I don't personally drink much. If I have two drinks in a year, that's a lot. I, I, I know people that drink. I know people that smoke a lot of weed because I'm in Austin, and if you don't deal with weed, you don't have friends. I don't have any moral qualms about it. As long as it's not hurting me, I don't give the first damn. Right? I don't care what you do, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. That's between you and your own, that's your own issue. I choose not to drink because I don't enjoy it. My father had, I had some, some, when I was younger, I had some problems with my dad when he was drunk for a couple of years. It's a personal choice, but I'm not morally opposed to it. And that's the difference between orthorexics and simply choosing not to eat something that you know through experience has thrown you off your diet. But that's how extreme it's gotten It. It's not that you can allow non-diet foods. It is you must allow non-diet foods. And those are very different things to me. Giving someone the option to do so is very different than saying that they have to or they're dieting wrong. And it's no different than saying if you eat those foods, you're dieting wrong. So that's problem number one and the, the most general. And I know not everyone is doing this. This is an aggregate type of thing. And unfortunately, the extremists in any any field are the loudest. The people that don't have this attitude, they're not the ones online screaming about it. It's true of any ideology. So that's problem number one. The biggest problem I see, and I think this is the biggest attitudinal or conceptual change I have, right? Most people who are really pro-flexible dieting in terms of specific strategies, if it fits your macros, whatever the strategy is, if you look at their history, They've got five or ten years of rigid dieting. I did it. You probably did it. We've all we all started there. I spent years measuring every morsel being completely psychotic. These people are like, oh, you know I eat intuitively that's a whole separate thing. I just I eat what I want. No, you don't. You look at people that are eating intuitively. Wow, you had half a bowl of cereal and a quarter cup of milk. Whoa. <laughs> Because subconsciously, even if I go to a buffet and I'm eating all the food, I know how much I'm eating. I don't care, but I know exactly what I'm putting in the system. They've even shown that obese individuals, the part of your brain, the frontal cortex that makes you aware of that type of thing, it turns on in lean people and doesn't turn on in the obese. The lean person knows how much they're eating. They go, well, I've had enough, consciously. Even if they're not full. The obese person. So someone with coming from a 10-year background of rigid eating, A knows exactly what that, if it fits your macro food is, how much is in that Pop-Tart. They've got the food control, because they've developed it over years, and they probably may have a different biology. That's fantastic. That's all good and well. Here's the the thing. If you take someone, if you take the typical overweight individual, they have A decade, two decades of really poor eating. They often have a neurobiology that is very different in terms of the reward system, maybe a little bit dysfunctional. Just their taste for these things, their ability to control their food may not be good. And if you tell them, you know what, I want you to go out and deliberately break your diet too early on, it may very well throw them off their diet because all you're doing is throwing them back into the same food habits that cause them to lose control, which isn't to say that they can't try it. And, and a book that's kind of currently on hold that that insane women's book derived from, I taught, and I taught about the women's book too, is like, look, these strategies are great when they work and they're completely self-destructive when they don't. So try them. Go out, have a free meal. And if you wake up the next day and get right back on your diet, you can use it. And if it throws you off your diet, it's not for you. Or more accurately, it's not for you right now. Maybe twelve weeks from now, when your taste buds have changed, when your food habits and habits are as important as anything else, when your food habits are better in control, try it again. So that's a practical issue. Uh, there's another issue that a lot of that a lot of people don't consider, which is a lot of the guys really trumpeting it. Oh yeah, I have my two Pop Tarts day, and they're big. One, they're big. Males who are burning a lot of calories, who are dieting on 2,000 calories, they can put in a couple hundred calories junk and be fine. Small females don't have the room in their diet. When you're on, you know, the quote the poverty macros, a woman on 1,300 calories who eats a Pop-Tart is now starving to death in the sense of the volume of – so there's another practical issue. Great when it works, horrible when it doesn't. So that's the, the and this, this is why I got into what flexible dieting really means. Flexible dieting is an attitude more than a strategy. And one of the questions is, okay, because with a lot of psychological stuff, a lot of it's very inbuilt, right? If you are a perfectionist, that's, there's a biology. Now it can be changed with cognitive behavioral therapy and whatever, but that's kind of who you, part of who you are. So the question for a while was, Are these flexible and rigid attitudes are they inbuilt are they learned more than that can they be modified and and several papers weston hofer is the one doing a lot of this work showed that one of the predictors of three-year weight loss success was developing a flexible attitude so it can be changed over time a lot of this is getting people to understand okay fine and I've put this example in my books, right? You've been dieting for six days. You've stuck to your deficit. You've created a 3,000-calorie deficit across the week. Even today, right, you've maintained your deficit, 500 calories. Okay, you had 200 calories of junk. Well, guess what? A, you still have a 300-calorie deficit, so you're good. You're still on your diet. Are you, and you're 200 calories behind. What is 200 over 3,500? What is that, 1 17th of a pound? Whatever it works out to. I can't do the math in my head right now. But it's like that 200 calories doesn't matter. Even even if you eat at maintenance, well, you're still 3,000 calorie deficit for the week. Now you're one-seventh of a pound behind your goal. Really? Just really? This this is the end of the world for you? Even if you eat 500 calories over your goal, you've still got a 25. Okay, now you've lost two-sevenths, one three-and-a-half. Of a pound behind your goal. Now, if you're, uh, you know, if you're on a tight schedule, that might matter. The general public, dude, you're looking at a year of dieting. This day doesn't matter. And one aspect of flexible dieting attitudes is that okay, you just make a little adjustment the next day. Little being the key word. Do not go, well, I ate 300 calories over my goal today. I'm going to do three hours of cardio. That's exercise bulimia. That's a whole separate thing, right? Fine, you are a few hundred calories over your goal. Well, adjust a little bit the next day. Adjust a little bit the next two or three days. You're right back on schedule. Or just move on with your life and don't give a damn, right? And this gets into a thing, and, and I actually did—I dug into the, the drug addiction research because there's a lot. I think to me, there's a lot more good stuff coming out of that because there the behavioral issues are easy. Don't do it. <laughs> Just don't. It's not a matter of modification. It's a matter of don't. And but there are still lapses, and they call this the um, abstinence violation effect, the AVE. And it's like, okay, you've lapsed on your your goal. You can see it one of two ways. You can see it as a negative, beat yourself up over it, and guess what? You're probably just going to go right back to using. That's how most. That's how the rigid dieter approaches dieting. I screwed up. I was weak. No, you're human. I blew it because I sucked. Because I have no willpower. I give up. Or you can learn from it. That's the positive. What what environment was I in? Did I go to a dinner party and I was hungry? Did I go into an environment that maybe I I can't handle? I, I years ago on some of my forums, some guy read my book and he was he was like three weeks into dieting. He's like, I'm gonna go to the buffet, dude. Please don't. You are self sabotaging yourself because there is no way in hell you are gonna go to the buffet and not go nuts. You're not there yet. You may never be there. Right? There are alcoholics that can eventually. Probably not ever have a drink, but they can go to the bar with their friends and they'll drink their soda water and they can be around it. That may be years. It may not be. Like I said, I'm not a drug addiction specialist. If I'm getting the numbers wrong, don't don't crucify me for it. But and some may never get there. Some simply can't be around it. So guess what? You have to cut yourself off from your friends that drink. You never go yeah. to those environments. Food you don't. But again, so my my point being that. Getting people to adopt a flexible dieting mentality, especially in beginners who don't have that food control, that's the bigger issue. The specific strategies can come later or not. You know, those are great free meals, like if it fits your macros, when it works. But it's more of getting them to change their overall ad- – attitude. And, and I find that the intermittent – sorry, I keep saying intermittent fasting. That's a, <laughs> that's a whole separate kettle of fish. They're, they've, become just, they've become just as bad, too. I can predict 99 percent certainty that if the word breakfast shows up on my Facebook group, there will be at least one person who goes, "Well, I haven't ate breakfast for months. I don't care." I, seriously, you are a religious zealot. Be gone. Same thing here. The if the 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 flexible dieting zealots, if anyone even suggests clean eating, they will have to go. If you're not if you're not flexible dieting, so it's it's really a matter of, of the strategies are great when they work, but it's more of an attitudinal thing. And with beginners, with the overweight beginner, with someone without a decade of food control, you, you need to work on the attitudes first. And and a lot of that comes with time. So great, they had a bad day. You go, it's, it's all good. Everybody's done it. What can we learn from this? What positive can we take from this? And and now we gotta learn now we gotta make another mistake, right? Learn right. dieting as I'm starting to put it now. Dieting is a learning process. You can give somebody the best diet, and if it doesn't, you know, bad advice not taken – or good advice not taken is bad advice, as Dan Duchesne once said. What can we learn from this experience? All right, well, I had a spoonful of peanut butter, and I ate the jar. Um, Maybe I shouldn't do that. (laughs) Or maybe I should go get a single packet of peanut butter, which I think they make now. Like, you know, for me, I know that if I get a box – a bag of cookies, well, I will eat the bag of cookies, Right. I can't have them in the house. If I'm dieting and want a treat, A, I have to get dressed, go to the grocery store, the mini mart, I buy exactly how much I want to eat, I get a single serving packet or whatever it is, that's it. Because that for me is a practical, because I learned the hard way what doesn't work but that's where you have to change that mindset from I messed up my diet because I'm weak and I suck and I can't stick to anything. And I've never, well, yeah, you did. You succeeded for six days and you had one bad day, but people focus on the one bad or bad meal where you ate a snack because God forbid you be human. Um, So a lot of it, and that's where I really see that that community going wrong. If you're not doing, if it fits your macros, you are not dieting properly. Maybe they can't because it kicks yeah, them off yeah. their diet or doesn't fit in their diet. You know, one way for the the smaller female, they'll be raising calories to maintenance on a diet. Well, that's when you fit in the snack, when your calories are up by 750 a day. Now you have room for it. It's great to tell people. So anyway, so that that that's kind of where I think, unfortunately, the flexible dieting community has gotten itself. And again yeah. – and this is a different issue, again, I, what I've always I've long seen, the typical trainer, fitness type. At 15, man, I got in the weight room, and it was what I wanted to do. And I wanted to be sore and train. And look at how the, you know, the typical overweight individual, man, they're scared going into the gym because they're surrounded by a bunch of perfect-bodied, self-righteous, judgmental pains in the ass. I don't know if you saw recently, some fitness chick – basically took a picture of an overweight woman who was at the gym working on it and was like, can't unsee this. It's like, you want to know why people don't want to go to the gym? Because of you. Because they walk in and you judge them for trying to better themselves. Like I know people hate Planet Fitness and shit on Planet Fitness. Well, guess what? They've got more people in the gym than any gold ever has. You know why? Because it's not filled with a bunch of judgmental a-hole, let's be honest, bodybuilders. Powerlifters aren't like this. Olympic lifters aren't like this. It's the, it's the, it's the fitness freaks. Anyway, that's where the trainers and the coaches come from. And I think they frequently don't understand the psychology of someone who doesn't want to be doing this, who doesn't have the drive. A lot of times frequently the best trainers are people that were overweight and figured it out because they understand if you've never been 300 pounds, you don't know what that's like. You have no conception I see – go to the gym and you see this little 130-pound, 150-pound trainer taking a 300-pound woman through walking lunges. Are you out of your damn mind? <laughs> are you out – You know, some of the early ebooks that are like, oh, beginner trainees, T-push-ups with 150-pound male. Really? Really? You think a 350-pound guy is going to be able to do one of these? What a great way to make them hate what they're doing. And diet is the same. Frequently, you need to introduce them, gradually change their attitude before you get into the specifics, but that's been lost. So there's my 40-minute yeah. rant about that.
0: And like I said, yeah. you
1: blame me for a lot of this, but I, I have seen it really go go a direction that I think has done more harm. And that that's not even getting into the all Pop-Tart guys or these 10,000 calorie food challenges or all this crap that make people think that, that people are crazy because they want to get YouTube views. But anyway...
0: Yeah, oh man, you you're the you're the perfect podcast guest because you just have to switch a button and the podcast gets created. So, Does itself. Yeah, right, because I won't shut up. Uh, but so that that's the first comment, but the second comment is I love how you made some definitions behind the term because that that flexible dieting is is more of of an attitude and not necessarily the nutritional strategy and tracking macros itself. And and I think I think that Um, the where clean eaters went wrong in the past and why it's gotten so much flack is a is a combination of a couple of things one a lack of knowledge and understanding thermodynamics and simple concepts like that and b and probably more importantly the ability to stay mindful and to to learn or to be able to practice the skill of moderation which is much harder in my experience especially for a lot of people with certain psychology, psychological makeup than extremist uh, approaches. And so the only thing I would be wondering about is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, all things being equal, you know, let's say we had two study groups and both of them had the same nutritional knowledge and kind of the, the proper mindset, which one would be able to control their food better? Those who kind of view foods as good or bad or those who, Those who just have this, you know, all foods are completely equal as as long as macros are the same. Because I know for myself that I've always had a much easier time controlling my food intake with those foods that I kind of qualified as bad. Because like I never had the urge to eat tons of French fries, for example, even though I love them. But because I view them kind of as this processed crap... I just excluded, but things with like peanut butter or oatmeal, which are kind of nutritious, healthy, whatever. I have a much more difficult time controlling myself with those foods, or had in the past before I bend them for good.
1: <laughs> so, like, so on the one hand, there are study, there are studies that show that people do better with simple rule diets, right? Now we tend to think, that, you know, people that are very into this, uh, I'm measuring macros and I'm measuring numbers, I'm considering nutrient density. And that's great right. When you're when you need to be that kind of detailed and stuff, um, but again, I think there's you know there's the issue. It's different if you're trying to diet from twelve percent to eight percent for a man. You're, you've got a lot less flexibility. Someone just starting out, whatever they just need to change. It. They need to be eating less, whatever works. But simple rules diets give them less to think about, right? If you say don't eat carbs, well, that's easy. I know what a carb is. Well, sometimes people know what a carb is. I can't eat it. I can't eat it. Right? Even getting back to that. The drug addiction literature, they talk about dry, bright line boundaries. Right? If you say, tell someone, you know, you can maybe go into a bar and be okay, well they will, they'll probably, they may fall off the wagon. If you say, you can't go into a bar, or so let me actually, it's even the language is even better. I don't go to bars. So like clearly to diet, you have to be restrained, right? It's, it's wonderful to go, ah, I mean, there's that percentage of people that just stay lean naturally and we hate them. But for most people, to lose weight, you have to be concerned and restrain your eating. This is just the reality of the world. However, this, there is that rigid versus flexible restraint with flexible restraint generally being superior overall. Um, but yeah, certainly I do think there's just all these overlapping factors. And we're not, we're not quite there. You know, usually they give these really, these various questionnaires to determine if you're rigid restraint and disinhibited. And and that's another issue. Um, I believe rigid restraint per se is not the problem. It's rigid restraint for people that have high disinhibition. So if you've got that particular combination, that's when breaking your diet causes you to lose control. So there are people with rigid restraint who don't become disinhibited if they break their diet a little bit. There are, I guess that there are questionnaires out there that allow you to determine this, but that could be another, you know, another way of, of uh, determining ahead of time who might be better or worse for a given diet. Um, and again, I think a lot of what we see, we don't hear, well, it's funny. Now we hear about the people succeeding, right? You look at the clean eating community and everyone's like, Oh, yep all all the winners use clean eating well a not true anymore but even if that were true sport selects for success right what we don't hear about in the clean eating thing we don't hear about the whatever percentage let's call it 80 who don't get there we don't hear about the 80% who crack who break who blow go off their diet and never get back on for months and months and months we see the people that it works for and I think you see the same thing and it's funny because usually you see the other way around like I said the dieting failures you typically in general dieting you hear about the people who aren't succeeding but for clean eating we focus on the winners well that's like focusing on the Bulgarian Olympic lifters one out of 66 guys actually didn't get wrecked by that program well that's the guy that won but the 65 who got destroyed is what matters if a given dietary approach is working for 10% and failing for 90, that's not a good dietary approach. If a given dietary approach is getting 75% of people closer to their goals, maybe not to the upper limit, and failing for 25%, that is statistically a better approach for the majority. I think we've also got this issue, right, we've got the general dieting public who are whatever. For a male, let's say it's 25% body fat to 40. For a woman, 30. I mean, there are, there are cases of people with 60% body fat. We have the general population who have pro- issues with food control, bad overall lifestyle, style, generally. Then we have the obsessives, right? Then we have the, the males going from 15 to 8 or 12 to contest level. The women going from 22 to 10 to 12% for contests. These are really distinct populations in my mind. Here, the issue is usually physiological, right? That's my ultimate diet, stubborn fat. You're dealing with the body fighting back. They've got good food control. By and large, they have got their training. You know, they don't miss workouts. There, you're dealing with physiological aspects. Here, you're generally dealing with psychological aspects. Or behavioral, I think, is a better word. For this group, for the general population, you're looking at a very different set. And of course, research focuses here. By and large, research doesn't give a damn about lean athletes and fat loss. Why would they? <laughs> right now, there's it's funny, there's more work coming out on they're looking at you know, physique competitors and they've always been interested in bodybuilders. But why would you do a weight loss study in a lean athlete? They don't need it. Yeah. Right, so, we, so most of the research is on the general population. I, you know, the, the athletes, lean athletes is a much more interesting group. The phys, to me, the physiological problems have fascinated me for two decades. But it's, ten, what, 10%, 5% of the weight loss population? This is the group that's having problems, is losing even 10% of their starting weight and keeping it off, and that gets into behavioral stuff. So he, I think you are looking at different things for lean athlete. You don't have the flexibility. If you're on 1,800 calories, there's not a lot of room there. And if conceptualizing a food as bad so that you won't eat it, can't eat it, sorry, won't eat it, that's a very different thing than this person. If you tell them you can't ever have something, they're just going to crave it and finding a way to allow it within limits. So, I, I do, like I said, I think you've got a whole set of interacting variables that's population specific, individual specific, goal specific. And to get a guy to 15% body fat, they can do that without counting calories. They really can. To get him to 10 to 12, it's going to take a lot more work. And to get him to sub 10, he's going to have to be meticulous, right? And again, Eric Helms has you know his his three tier system, which I think is is excellent. And you know at this level, just change something, man. If you're got someone who's 50 pounds overweight, look at their diet. Find the one big red flag: regular soda, whatever it is. Small changes make huge differences. I had a client years ago. He was drinking like four regular sodas a day. I said, switch to diet or water. That was it. He's he losing two pounds a week. Yeah. Yeah. I made the, the, tini- the tiniest, most non-intrusive change I could make with him. And if I'm dealing with a guy at 10%, I need to know your activity, your calories, your protein. I got to know all the details because you've got that tiny little range to work with him to get you to your goal not lose muscle mass maintain your performance if you're an athlete so you're dealing with a lot of different issues on top of the individual stuff so yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's a question so much as
0: definitely definitely and and I think to to conclude this this uh, segment of this discussion which is on flexible dieting I think the conclusion is that it's more an attitude and if you do, if you have an unflexible attitude, then you're gonna you're not gonna do well regardless of if you do clean eating or macro tracking. Because if you have an unflexible attitude and you follow quote unquote flexible dieting and you go over by 200 calories or 50 carbs or whatever, you're going to lose your shit. And no, absolutely.
1: No, I think that's a really good point. Um, and actually, and just kind of get before we move on, one thing I've always found interesting, like the clean eaters, and and you are dealing with if not overt, then subclinical eating disorders like it, the, the reality this this is a really sick thing to say, but there's truth to it. Having a subclinical eating disorder is great for dieting for physique competitors and most of them do. I mean it's just it's I'm not trying to trivialize eating disorders. I know that they're tra- they're tragic, they're fatal they're, hor- they're it's a horrible horrible thing to deal with. But in a very real sense, from a dieting standpoint, and, and, and I do think, you know, obviously the eating and training habits of the athlete are very different than the anorexic who's eating an apple a day we're dealing with, it is a relatively healthier outlet for what may be a subclinical eating disorder. In the aggregate, it is, because they've got the food control, like again, I know it's really kind of sick to put it in those terms, but it is, it is actually absolutely the case. But what you see in that clean eating community, as they say that flexible dieting is terrible and this food will kill your health, this and that and the other, what do they do? They plan a cheat day where they actually, they they factually eat more bad foods, unclean foods, junk foods, whatever the hell you want to call it. They eat more on that single day than 90% of flexible dieters eat in a week or two weeks. And yet, because of their the way they conceptualize diet, it's either perfect or a binge. That is a bulimic type of attitude, mm-hmm. rather than moderation. It's it's on or off for them, and that can. And, and that weekly pattern become become a monthly pattern, become an annual pattern. These folks will literally diet for six straight months, clean eating all the way through, and then they won't go to the gym for three months. They're so burnt out. They're so psychologically destroyed. They're off there, and they just eat, and they gain 40 pounds, and then they can't ever get it off. Like, it happens. And – so there even there's like a good example like it's this extremist that's rigid dieting in a nutshell it's extremist if they break their diet a little bit it's blizzard day the flexible dieter assuming that the flexible dieting isn't its own trigger is just like well and even and i think what's funny even the flexible dieters even the most adamant if it fits your macros they're not even doing it every day in my experience I know we've got the all pop-tart idiots I know we've got the guys the ice cream diet guy. I know we've got these guys trying to make a point the average if it fits your macros guy or flexible dieter it's not a matter of I must have this every day I will have this every day it's I can have this if I want it And again these are very different ways of conceptualizing what's going on even knowing that you can is very different than having to do it. it's a It takes a psychological stress if it's a, like you said, fries to you. If I said, you will never have a French fry again in your life, you want them now. That would suck. Only because you know you can't have them. Knowing that at some point, if you're just in the mood, once a month, I just want to have a greasy plate of salty French fries or whatever you put on them. Um, knowing that you can takes the psychological stress away from knowing, telling someone you can never eat this again is a very different psychological construct. Um, Then again, you could also argue, well, how satisfying is it to know that you can eat a little bit? If I told you, well, within your calorie limit, you can have six French fries, that might even be worse. <laughs> and I think that's the point. You're making free you know that's the, that's the, the other problem with, with if it fits your macros or flexible dieting to a degree, is if you're trying to keep it within a certain macro content, for some people, a little may actually be worse than none because it's less satisfying. Like it's great to eat a box of pop tarts. I've done it. It's great to eat a bag of cookies or whatever. Only having a couple is some can often be less satisfying. Um, yeah. which is also maybe a reason to save that for you. Know, I, I don't like the term cheat meal. Like when you're doing kind of a refeed and raising calories to maintenance, that's really when you have the calories to play with. When you're going from 1,800 to 3,000, you can actually fit in, you know. And, and this is something else I, I suggested in, in the women's book, and I'll talk about this when I finish this other book, is for a lot of people, free meals, the, the idea of you having a non-diet meal is really – it's kind of pointless and I've had people say that and the more I've thought about it, I don't think they're wrong. It's like, it makes it a non diet day, but it's may not. And it's like, well, I don't really feel like I'm making progress, but it's not really satisfying me. And do I have to do them? And I'm like, eh, no, you know, if you want it, it, know that you can, if you've got a social event or whatever, you can go do it and not stress about it. For a lot of people, that free meal concept is in this really nebulous, it kind of helps psychologically, but not really physiologically. Refeeds are better because it's like, well, now you've got a lot more calories to play with, and you can actually have a satisfying amount of that that off diet food. Uh, diet breaks, same thing. You're at maintenance for seven to fourteen days. You've got a lot of more room to fit stuff in within your calorie budget because your calorie budget's much higher. So, I think for a lot of people. Those might be better practical strategies to apply these to than uh, free meals, especially, or even if it fits your macros. Because let's face it, one pop tart is not interesting. Yeah, six hundred calories of pop tarts is interesting. Yeah, um, but I think that's something Eric talks about as well, because you know his his approach to dieting is actually as you get deeper in the diet. Uh, You you refeed more often you move to maintenance more often and I've been been saying that for years which also falls on deaf ears What do you mean I should diet less strictly as I get leaner because you should just trust me on this What that means is you actually have more the diet days get harder But the non diet days you've even got a little bit more flexibility because calories are significantly higher combining those two and putting those flexible, because again, flexible dieting doesn't mean you have to eat flexibly every day, or you have to apply if it fits your macros. It means that you can if you want to, and I think that's another point that's really been missed. It's great these guys are like, yep, I eat a Pop-Tart every day. Well, goody. I don't care. That may work for you, but for other people, just knowing they can once or twice a day, twice a week, rather, may be enough.
0: Alright, guys, I hope you enjoyed this part one of this amazing interview with Lyle. And as I said, next week, we will be back with part two, where we basically further investigate the topics of overeating, uh, how your personality affects of what kind of dietary strategies you should be choosing for yourself. And we will also be discussing fast versus slow weight loss. So, An amazing part two is coming up very soon. I hope you enjoyed this and subscribe to me on YouTube if you watched it there or leave a rating on iTunes if you listen to it in podcast format. And yeah, see you very soon. Um, Yeah, that was it. Bye.